enter the Ebony Tower podcast, a resource, conversation, and community for and by brilliant yet underrecognized and underrepresented scholars of color. Welcome back to the Ebony Tower podcast. This is Rachel. This is Daphne, and for today's episode, we are shining the scholar spotlight on Dr. Anthony Abraham Jack, a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows and assistant professor of education at Harvard Graduate School of Education. In addition to discussing his journey from graduate student to professor, our conversation will also focus on his first book, The Privileged Poor, How Elite Colleges Are Failing Disadvantaged Students, which you can find in a bookstore near you on March 1st. Welcome, uh, Professor Jack. Yeah, we're, we're so excited. I also want to hear, like, how does that feel, Professor Jack? How does that feel? <laughs> it feels good. Well, after coming to graduate school in 2008 and taking uh, eight years to, to get through yeah. that gauntlet, it feels good to hear. Still not used to it, though, but I, get, I, I will be soon enough. I'm sure you will. So we generally start the these conversations by just trying to get to know you better as a person. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your academic journey from graduate student yeah, to professor? I am originally from Miami, Florida. I'm a first generation college student. And it's one of the first pieces of my identity that I share with people because it's so much about that journey. It's so much about being from a place where we celebrated high schools rather than going to college. And so um, I went to Amherst College. I was a full scholarship student there. And that's when I got introduced to Academia, really. That's when I got used to the, the commencement ceremonies and the regalia. And I, I have to admit, I fell in love with the Harvard robe long before I actually knew I was going to be able to take the chance to earn one. And I came to graduate school more on a whim than a strategic plan. I was in a job that I hated. And I had lunch with a professor and she told me, she was like, you probably shouldn't stay here another year because you don't look happy. And I was like, I'm not. I hate the position. And she said, well, you should go to graduate school. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I was thinking about that. But what to get what? You know, should I get a JD? Should I get an MD? Because I was pre-med at Amherst as well. Should I go get an MBA? She was like, well, why don't you get a PhD? I said, you know what? That's not a good idea. Y'all got summers off. Y'all live a good life. And I asked her, so in what? She said, well, you like my class. Why don't you get a PhD in sociology? Um, and, I came, and, and I applied to graduate school. I applied to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Penn. Got into... Penn and Harvard. And on April Fool's that year, I actually chose to come to Harvard. And it was an interesting experience because I didn't know what a journal was and how we talk about it. Like, oh, I read this great paper in ASR. I read this great paper in AJS. I'm like, every time we talk about a journal, I'm just like, are y'all taking like, you know, Anne Frank style notes or something? I had no idea of a lot. <laughs> I was very, very new to it. I had people in my cohort who were the children of sociologists, let alone professors. And so there were a lot of things that I had to navigate on my own. I brought in certain skills that I, we probably could talk about that I think helped me along the way. But it was hard. I actually almost left graduate school about three or four times over the course of the eight years I was a PhD student at Harvard. It happened most of my first two years because I absolutely hated it. Didn't really like the people. I had a core group of friends, but there was like no real support in those first two years. And it was just really, really difficult. And then my first paper, which ended up being the foundation for 
my work on lower income students in higher education was rejected five times from different journals. American Sociological Review, Sociology of Education. I'm going to name them because I want to put them out there. Um, <laughs> do American, it, do American it. Racial <laughs> studies, social forces and social problems. Before Sociological Forum even gave me my first R&R, and I will be forever in debt to that journal for giving me a chance. But five times, after one time, you kind of understand. After two, okay. Three, you start to second guess the process. Four, you start second guessing yourself. That fifth one, I was about to say to hell with it until I reached out to two people. I reached out to Al Young at the University of Michigan, and I reached out to Prudence Carter, who is now the dean of Berkeley. And I was just like, these are two people who I admire. I have to ask them a question about the framing of their article. And I was very, very glad that both of them answered my email with a phone call. Without them reaching out, I probably would have left the sociology department with my master's and been like, okay, I'm done. After that moment, I got that first publication and then the work took on a life of its own. If you would have told me after that fifth rejection that my work would have won three awards and been showcased in the New York Times four times, two of them penned by me, let alone the book and being on NPR and all these other places and being featured, I would have laughed at you because I just didn't see it. And my experience was so hellish that it was about surviving, not about all this other stuff. But I was like, let me stick my head down. I might be on to something. And then the Society of Fellows happened. Then the assistant professorship at Harvard happened literally within 12 hours of each other. And then I learned that I was given an endowed chair at Radcliffe while also other offers from, from other schools. And I had to make a choice. Where is the best place for me to start my career? And it ended up being that I need to stay my butt home. That's how I end up talking to y'all while I sit in my office in Gutman Library. That is so inspiring. That is a perfect story to say, don't quit. Don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on your work. Wow. No, Thank I, you for no, sharing I appreciate that. the opportunity to do so. And I, I absolutely believe that we should not give up on ourselves. But I also think if that story can be used to share something, it's also reach out for help. And don't think that help is only going to come to people in your department or in your program. The two people who helped me the most get that paper from where it was on my desk, getting rejected five times to getting it published were two black scholars outside of my department. And I will never forget what they did for me those days they called. Can you actually tell us what was the advice or what is the thing that stands out from you about that experience when you asked for help that helped you get through? I'm sure you like, you know, you just start to doubt yourself and why you're even doing this anymore. So do you remember something they told you or something you got out of that experience? Yeah, I had an amazing advisor. My advisor was William Julius Wilson. And I don't even know why I say was. He still is, in my opinion. And Bill helped me get to a point, but I needed to fine tune it and take it that next step. That was my stretch moment, right? I was really like just trying to nail down an argument. And I needed to talk to Al Young because he used a methodology that I had not seen other people use. And he wrote about it in a footnote. And I said, I have to ask him, what, what did he mean by this? 
And Al took the time to explain to me his thinking behind his methods and how he approaches engaging the work, not only as a cultural sociologist, but as a scholar of race and inequality. Prudence Carter, when I spoke to her, I was feeling very frustrated. She said, tell me, well, just tell me what you're trying to do. And I told her, and she said, okay, write that. Instead of trying to sound like other articles, write your article. Respond to other people, but make sure you have your voice. Write that article because it sounds like enforcing yourself to use a cadence and a language and a structure that was not really fitting you. Your argument got lost. She just told me that get rid of all this extra stuff. Just write it in the simplest way. And I really appreciated that perspective because I needed it from somebody from the outside. Because anybody who has read a friend's work, sometimes you begin to see it with the same eyes that your friends do. And I needed somebody from the outside and, and, and those who provided that, but also provided the support of a young scholar who was having a bad moment. Yeah, I totally understand that. That's so interesting. Recently, I got this, a similar advice about thinking about methodology and approach that really helped me with an article I'm struggling to write. But I feel like this is the perfect time for you to tell us a little bit about your work and um, what's shaped your research interests. Two things collided in graduate school. My own personal experience about being a first-generation college student and me diving into the literature on cultural sociology. When I was reading so much of the work by cultural sociologists from Borgia to Annette LaRoe and other people, but also those who use that within education research, I never saw myself. And I don't mean I didn't like the story. I thought they told it wrong. Like, I literally did not see myself or the students who I went to school with. Because when scholars wrote about first generation and lower income college students, they wrote about us as a monolithic group, as an undifferentiated groups of students at risk who experienced culture shock and isolation. But I went to school with people who participated in programs like Prep for Prep and A Better Chance and the Oliver Scholars and the White Foundation, W-I-G-H-T. They went to schools like Andover, Exeter, Deerfield, St. Paul, Choke. These boarding schools that were basically smaller versions or sometimes the same size as Amherst, right? These manicured campuses with classes where it's only five people. They've been taught by PhDs. They had office hours. And they entered college with a very different set of experiences. And I was just like, something is not right. Sociologists aren't paying attention to this diversity of experiences. And so in my master's thesis... I wanted to see what was the experience of lower income students because I felt that it wasn't answered. I thought that they got the story half right. And in that research, I came up with the terms privileged poor and doubly disadvantaged to describe lower income students at elite colleges. Privileged poor are low income students who are economically disadvantaged, but they went to elite boarding day and preparatory high schools that gave them access to the educational and social experiences of the top 1%, and they, they enter college with different stocks of cultural capital. 
And by cultural capital, I just mean those taken for granted ways of being that are valued in college. They knew about office hours. They knew about the Vineyard and the Hamptons. They knew about Canada Goose and Montclair and all those brands. They knew about a lot of the hidden curriculum, both the academic side of things and the social side of things that permeate campus. They knew about it before they even stepped foot on campus. Many of them had their, you know, their interviews. Instead of having to go to the interviews, the interviewers came to them because so many students in their high school went to the school. Then I talked about the students who I call the W disadvantage, and they were economically poor. But what the real hurdle that they faced in college was the fact that it was a combination of not only colleges privileging privilege, but the, also the consequences of the disinvestment in public K-12 education, as well as how our neighborhoods shape the life chances of people. So not only do you have students who are coming from traditionally underserved communities, they are also in overcrowded, underfunded public schools making the jump from high school to college. And what I hope in bringing the privileged poor and the double disadvantaged to life is it removes the conversation from individual attitude or individual drive and places the focus on societal inequalities that hurt the chances of lower income students for not just making it through college, but making it to college at all. Mm, That's so uh, powerful. I just, I have to ask this. Your book is called The Privileged Poor. Have you received any pushback about that term or that title at all? Yes, I have. Um, But at the same time, it forces you to deal with it, even if you don't, even if you don't agree with it. It forces you to question how can mm-hmm. one be both privileged and poor? It's an oxymoron, right? Like it invites that conversation. You know, it wasn't accidental that I came up with the term. I was very intentional. You know, I couldn't like completely give up my humanistic side, you know, after going to Amherst and different things like that. I, that was very intentional. I wanted people to react to it, but I also wanted to capture the reality that I was observing. Now, I can say that. Privileged poor and double disadvantaged are barbarian ideal types used to capture the reality of people. But it also is the fact that we have tried to flatten out the diversity among lower income students because we haven't done the work. We haven't interrogated that these stereotypical notions of what it means to be poor and black on an Ivy League campus because we're so in love with telling the impoverished story. We love telling like, oh, this poor person came to college and they struggled. It's a great headline. But how many damn times are we going to see that headline? So if you want to get mad at me for saying privileged poor, that's perfectly fine. But you should also be mad at people who tell the story that is being told over and over again just to sell, just to sell papers, just to sell books. So my thing is something different. My thing is like I'm trying to get you to interrogate how inequality and poverty shapes the life of even the most academically talented, driven students when they get to college. So I appreciate the pushback, but I appreciate when people actually engage with what I am trying to put up first. Mm -hmm. I I guess in thinking about that, I guess, what are the implications? Because you talked about a little bit, you know, they know these brands, they have cultural capital that the doubly disadvantaged might not have. But what do these terms mean when it comes to experiences and in relation to policies and practices that universities should have in place to support students from disadvantaged backgrounds? The privileged poor and the doubly disadvantaged allow me to show how 
college is still privilege, privilege. And I, and I use that term purposefully because one example is professors always say when their office hours are, but rarely ever say what office hours are. And think about that assumption. They are so used to educating students from a certain family background or a certain educational pedigree that they don't stop to question what turns out to be a basic thing or fundamental thing to the educational experience, but we also know just how important it is to have a mentor, to have somebody be able to to vouch for you, to have someone in the faculty or on staff know your story and can nominate you for prizes, awards, or let you know of different job opportunities, right? Office hours may be this mundane, everyday thing. That's also where you see inequality gets reproduced sometimes the most. It's in those everyday interactions where knowledge is passed on or where different kind of favors are given. And we've seen that how it discriminates against women, discriminates against people who don't drink when they have work sessions late night at clubs, as we were talking about at conferences. We know how those moments matter, but it also forces colleges to grapple with the fact that it's not a lower income student problem. It's a problem of those who have not had the experiences of navigating institutions that typically cater to the rich. And that alone, that shift from saying, oh, faculty engagement is a problem that our lower income students have to, oh, faculty engagement is a problem that only students who have not been to certain types of high school and have certain pedigrees have. That forces the college to question what they take for granted and the operating principles behind a lot of their policies. It's a big difference, a big difference in how you respond to that. Because if it's just an outreach thing and telling poor students that they should do something more, that's different. But if, if what I'm showing is that there is something endemic to the entire enterprise of how we engage students, that we let class lead to more and more stratification on our campuses. And so that's what the privileged poor and the doublest advantage allows me to do, is to show how toxic or how unequal or however you want to frame it an environment is for those who not only don't come from money, who have not lived the experiences that money provides. Uh, this is so interesting and so relevant right now. And I really liked how you talked about how schools have flattened diversity. Um, this is actually something I was just speaking to someone about. I know you said um, you had an opportunity. I don't know if you took it or not with Society of Fellows, but I was just talking to someone about how postdocs that are centered on diversity are often taking students who are privileged, diverse populations, <laughs> similar to what you're saying about privileged poor, like that happens in terms of international scholars as well. So I guess just to like extend your argument a bit more, can you tell us a little bit about how this framework can be applied to the graduate student experience? So I guess the example oh, that I just gave with postdocs is one, but yeah, speak more to that. I think we need to go beyond demographic diversity. I think we need to go beyond the boxes that we check when we have a person of color, whether from the U.S. or outside the U.S. I think we need to be more intentional in how we diversify. Because if we have, for example, a graduate program where you have four Latinos, but all of them come from top 1% families, you may have checked off 
the box in one way, but another way, there's a class dynamic that's in that cohort where we are still talking about a lack of diversity or a lack of access for different groups without putting a moral judgment on whether having four wealthy Latinos is a good thing or a bad thing for a program. Because for some programs, even having one is a remarkable feat, let alone their, given their history. So, you know, there's different ways in which we have to value these different things. But I think there needs to be an intentionality behind how graduate programs diversify themselves. There needs to be greater recruitment and greater cooperation with McNair and, and other programs that try to diversify the academy through helping undergraduates through research experience and marshalling them through graduate school with both financial support and social support. It's hard for me to comment on exactly what's going on post-college because so much of my work has been about the experience of college students, but the larger project, the larger research project about diversity and inclusion at academic institutions, it does fit within that and how we still must be intentional in how we not only recruit students, but who we recruit, paying attention directly to that. And what are the problems that those students have that may be very different from each other, even though they come from the same background, right? We have to be ready to educate the diverse class that we um, that we bring in. We also have to think about that. We're trying to diversify the professorate too. And the only way you do that is if you start with not only getting more students at the undergraduate level, not just making it through college, but actually showing that this enterprise is something worth investing your life in and more students get into graduate school. We have to be intentional at every step when we try to diversify. Because if we think just putting people in the seats is enough, we will fail. Mm, I I completely uh, agree with that. Uh, So kind of getting a little bit more into your book based on your dissertation, as someone who's in the process of researching and writing my dissertation, I'm really interested in understanding how your book is different from your dissertation and what was the process of writing a book proposal and securing a publisher, etc. I want to say this and I want everybody to hear it. A good dissertation is a done dissertation. And a done dissertation is a good dissertation. I cannot tell you how important it is to understand that. You will beat yourself up if you try to do a perfect dissertation and spend either too much time or too little time writing it. Just know when you hit that bar and work with your committee to be very honest and upfront with what needs to be done and what can be done in the time that you have. A piece of advice about writing a dissertation and take this as a freebie from me. Send your committee memos monthly or every other month. I wrote my committee a 20-page memo every month or so about findings, themes, and any kind of developments, both in the research and in my life. So you might say, well, if I'm sending 20-page memos, how am I actually doing work? A lot of the memos were either block quotes from texts that were transcribed, tables that just showed like, oh, I interviewed 15 more people since the last time. It was short paragraphs about, hey, I officiated a wedding two weeks ago. Here's a picture of me officiating a wedding. I told them about personal updates, like from weight loss to things like that, because I'm like, I need all the support I can get. I need the professional and the personal. And y'all are at least saying that y'all want to do it, so I'm going to lean on you. So I sent my committee memos every six weeks informing them of update. Why is that important in writing a dissertation? Because you will be on the job market soon after that. And you will also be defending your dissertation soon after. 
And there are two things that you don't want. What you don't want is agitation to have that commitment be like, oh, this is what you did? I would have done it differently then. And you have no defense to that. And you also, when you go on the job market, you want your community to be at least up to date with everything that you are doing and also some of the personal things that go into a letter recommendation. Also, the reason why I say the defense piece is because if someone says they actual defense, one thing that you can push back to them is like, well, in my memos that I sent you every six weeks, for the last year, I told you this is how I was progressing. Maybe we can have a conversation after this, but at least you were brought up to speed. Now, you can be more diplomatic because basically what you're saying is per your last email in the most academic way possible, right? So let's be real <laughs> about that. Before we I, move on one second, I just mm-hmm. want to say, where was this advice when I was writing? That is amazing advice. Nobody told me to do this. Yeah, I was afraid because when you do a dissertation, you go underground. Even if you stay local for your the frequency in which you enter the department or meet your committee goes down. I didn't want them to forget about me, the work I was doing, and I wasn't going to like not ask them questions. I also had been to a defense where a committee member was asking very basic questions as if they had just met the person. And I was like, that's not happening because I'm going to be already a bunch of nerves. My mama's going to be there and y'all going to pass me. Or it's going to be hell and high water. Like, it's going to be some, some hell to pay, I should say. You know, I couldn't say that, but that's how I felt, right? I'm like, I'm keeping y'all all up to date about stuff. And it's just, a, it's just a really good practice because also it helps in the writing because it forces you every six weeks to synthesize what you have. Even if it's half-baked ideas, when I went back and read Memo 2 versus Memo 3 versus Memo 4, I was like, oh, that's right. This did start here, and then I would write, go back. I, it was almost like my my analytical field note. There were things that I wrote down there that I had forgot about, and I would go back and read it, and I was like, oh, that's a perfect footnote for the dissertation. Let me remember, it was at this party or this event that this started, and it, it became a theme later on, but this is how it came to be. I would tell my committee how many student group events I went to, or that I moderated, or that I was asked, and what time the students emailed me. I told them about like big events and small events because I was just like using those memos as like a mental dump. To just like get everything off my mind. It was cleaned up and it had pictures and different things like that. But it was just my uh, a writing exercise to be like, how can I share what I've been doing? And it really helped. But to answer your question about the actual writing of the dissertation, some departments do things differently. Some people say like, we don't do a three paper dissertation or we do it this way. To be honest with you, I think everybody kind of does a three-article dissertation. It's just that sometimes there are three separate articles, and other times they are three connect, three or four connected chapters. I would say don't believe what everybody else is doing. Just do whatever best suits your data and your style for presenting the argument. I took the approach of, as a qualitative person, I want my dissertation to be the marble that One, I edited it and rearranged things. That was me being the artist chiseling away, trying to create my masterpiece. So my approach to the dissertation was once I actually knew that I wanted to structure the book around three moments of contact between students and their peers, their professors, and the university policies, 
I wrote very long, in-depth chapters on that experience, knowing that a lot of it will be cut out. But that's where the real work of the station actually is. It's not just in the writing of it. It's in showcasing the richness of your data and how it connects to your argument. Because what you don't want somebody to say is that, oh, you only have like three people who said this for a qualitative person. And these are the only examples that you can find. I want to show just how representative not just a particular strategy of action was, but just like how common students use similar language, how common it was that they evoked emotion or how they sounded when they started to talk about their parents and how their parents taught them to keep their head down. I wanted to capture that and I wanted my committee to see just how rich the data is because I also wanted them to talk about how rich my data was and how good of a writer I was when they wrote my letters of recommendation for jobs. Again, dissertation, job, graduation, it's all the same to me. When I wrote the dissertation, I also had my book in mind. So I didn't think that it would be smart for me to do a dissertation that was like so very different from the book. And I will say this, I had a very different graduate school experience and sometimes it was atypical for one of my chapters to not only be in the sociology of education as an article, but also to be a New York Times op-ed. There were certain things that were already published and out there in the world. And so I didn't think that it would be smart for me to start like just completely doing something very, very different, knowing that I was also trying to get a book contract and write a book over the next two years. So I did a proto-book dissertation. I had a four-chapter dissertation, not including the intro, conclusion, and appendix. And I wanted to showcase the richness of the data, my writing, and how I was weaving together a tight theoretical argument about poverty and inequality in higher education. Not everybody will agree with that. Some people believe that a dissertation should be like a standalone thing. That's perfectly fine, but I was also trying to work smart and hard. I wanted to do it right, but I also didn't want to like complete reinventing the wheel. And I hope it pays off. And I'm not saying that everybody should follow that, but like I have seen so many people do three article dissertations and be perfectly fine. For qualitative people, it's harder to do that because our work is much more narratively connected anyway. So just don't frame it as a three-article dissertation. Just say your dissertation is broken up to three chapters, past, present, future, interactions between peers, professors, and policy. Like, frame it however you want, but frame it however you want in a way that highlights your analytical skills, your methodological chops, and your contribution to whether it's policy or practice. Don't fall into that trap of, like, I have to do it this particular way, unless your committee will only pass you if you do it that way, then do what you got to do for your committee. And then to hell with that, do what you want for that book. <laughs> That's great advice. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, what your process was like for getting a publisher? And um, I think we asked you before about a book proposal. What yeah. advice do you have for our newly minted PhDs? My process was a little bit abnormal in the sense that with the New York Times op-ed comes certain conversations. Actually, let me back that up. Before I start talking about the New York Times piece, I had friends introduce me to people without me even knowing. I didn't find out that other scholars were like, oh, you should talk to Tony. He'll be writing a book. I have his dissertation too. 
And I am indebted to those people for doing that because that was actually how I got my first two conversations with Oxford and with Chicago University. Actually, also Columbia. Another person introduced me to Columbia as well. Then the New York Times drops and then academic places like Harvard and then two trade spots came into the conversation as well. So I had a very abnormal experience, but one that has roots into advice. Build that intergenerational network. Build that network of junior scholars who are assistant professors, young associates, and that cohort of senior faculty members who can help guide you in the way. Because without them, those first contact with presses don't happen. Second, don't be afraid to put yourself out there, not just with people, but with presses. But I would do so more so through people who have written with the presses. For example, I had always loved Harvard University Press's books. I think Harvard University Press produces the most beautiful books of all the presses. Not what's on the pages, but the actual product itself. I think is absolutely phenomenal. Some of my favorite books, like Racehorsemen, Dark Ghettos, A Chosen Exile, to me, is one of the most beautiful books you would ever put your hands on. So I had always been biased towards Harvard. And so I would have my eye open. But I was also hoping that Princeton University Press would call. Because my book, I thought, fit in between Lauren Rivera's pedigree and Seamus Khan's privilege. And so I asked, straight up, I'm like, who has published with Princeton? Like, what was your experience like? Because I want to be prepared for the day that Princeton would call, or I want to be be prepared that when I was ready to talk to them, I could ask Lauren or Seamus to make an introduction. Like, I was very intentional about building that network of people because I, I saw a place for myself. I never dreamed that Harvard would be interested in the book, to be honest with you. So when I got that email from the press, I was just like, of course I want to meet. Like, you have no idea. Like, I have an entire shelf at my house that are just HUP books because they are some of my favorites and not necessarily related sociology. So when it comes to a book contract and a book proposal, it is important to know a couple of things. One, a book proposal is not your first chapter that explains, like, the very convoluted history of your topic and your theoretical contribution and what other people are saying and how you're going to respond. And then 30 pages later, you actually get to the rest of the book. No, a book proposal that I have found to be a little more successful is showing is showing that you can write clearly that you can write succinctly and that you know where your book is going to be placed. And so by writing clearly, that's definite, but writing concisely, it says you have 20 pages, 15 to 20 pages max to show what is the larger argument that you are trying to make. Can you share that in three to five pages before you start talking about how you did it in a way that a lay audience can understand and then give a flavor for what's the audience that you are writing for that who will be a captive audience number one what other books are out there that you are either responding to or that are similar or that have garnered a lot of attention that you think that if that person read that book they're dying to read yours 
This is different from a literature review where you say Smith 2019 said this, whereas Willis 47 said this. No, it's more like there are five books that my book will be similar to, but that will stand out from. Here are the five books, and my book is different because of X. Also, people read a lot of book proposals, so you have to be careful not to, like, quite frankly, to bore them and not get them enticed. Like, pick a good example from the book that really highlights either your contribution or the topic, and then say, as I explore X and Y, what you really see is a, is a new understanding for how society works in these ways. And then you go into detail about, like, okay, this is kind of the project, and this is how I carry it out. These are other people who wrote about it. My book is different because it explores this. This is the audience that I think will be very much interested in the book. Here is my social media presence. And here here are the different associations that I'm a part of. Because a bookseller also is trying to sell books. So what you want to do is to make sure that, you know, you have people who are interested in it. So for those individuals who are part of a whole bunch of associations, whether it's a teacher association, a scientific association, um, like black physicists and all that kind of stuff like that, you want to showcase that. You know, I help people through the process, good friends, through the process of saying like, no, let's shorten this down. Let's make it more pithy and all that kind of stuff like that. And, you know, because the ideas are there. And you write one paragraph on each chapter so you can get like an annotated table of contents. But it's not like this 70-page thing that basically is like copy and paste the entire introduction and then other other chapters without getting into the full proposal of the book that is marketable to other people. The other thing I would say is in choosing a press, really get to know the editor. My question to my editor at Harvard, Andrew Kenny, my last question to him was, how hungry are you? And I liked his answer because I wanted somebody who wanted to help me. I wanted somebody not to help me just get books out, but I wanted somebody who agreed to my timeline. Uh, I'm going to send you a chapter a month for your review. Now, I say that knowing that I was on a postdoc at Society of Fellows. I was on a three-year postdoc, and two of my years were no teaching. So when I said that I set a a timeline for myself of one month, at the end of that one-month timeline, he had a chapter. And people were surprised that I kept that pace up for all the chapters, but that was my goal because before I went through a second editing process, I wanted to make sure that the big-picture narrative arc was being seen by somebody whose eyes are not within sociology but was for, but had an eye of, of the general public. And that was incredibly important to me. That was very helpful and very detailed. I'll definitely keep all of that in mind as I write up my dissertation and think about having conversations with publishers and et cetera. Just one last quick advice question. You know, you were very successful on the job market and securing a postdoc. Is there any advice you would provide to doctoral students who are about to enter the job market? Oh, absolutely. Though I did this because of who I was as a person and sometimes felt more comfortable with staff than people in my department, the most important person that you will engage with on the job market is oftentimes the faculty assistant of people on your committee. They do amazing work day in and day out and are often overlooked. When you are on the job market, and well before, if you can, befriend them, not just because they will be sending out your letters, but befriend them because they're amazing people. You want to 
know what their system is, create a spreadsheet of every job that you are looking for and create a tab that is for each person so you can be as on top of things as possible. Apply for every job. Let's say it has a specific section on the application that says you cannot apply here. Apply for every single thing, even if it's a stretch. The piece of advice that Larry Bobo gave me, he was—he told me actually, he was like, unless it says that Anthony Jack can't apply, if it's a position that you want to go for, go for it. Apply for every single postdoc that you possibly can, because even if it only becomes a, pl- a point of leverage later on, it is an amazing opportunity to just sit and think about your research, whether it's for one year, two year, or three, it's an absolutely amazing opportunity to, to do so. There's a lot more advice I can I can give about the job market process. You know what? No, let me let's get real real for a second. The going on the job market is extremely expensive. You will have to do that reimbursement process and it sucks and it takes time. I saved up $2,000 in the years leading up to going on the job market and finishing the dissertation so that I can have a buffer when I knew I needed to buy suits, buy clothes, pay the upfront cost of different things. So my advice for those, especially those who are in years three and years four of the dissertation, see if you can save up $2,000 to help you through the very expensive aspect of the job market process. And if you can, save an additional two or $3,000 for the graduation, because what they don't tell you is the time difference between the last check that you get as a graduate student and the first check that you get as a faculty member or whatever job you take can be three or four months. And that is not cute at all. That's very, very important, the financial side of things, because no one tells you about that. And I was fortunate enough to just be scared out of my wits when hearing other people talk about their graduate school experiences. And now I make it a point to tell people. Yeah, you know, and that moving thing too, like say you secure a job, which I just got a postdoc and like the cost of moving. I I didn't save enough. So that's great advice. Um, so can you tell our listeners how they can learn more about you and your research? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so as Daphne mentioned earlier, the privileged poor is actually, I learned in bookstores. Now I was passing, I was at Princeton this weekend and I saw my book for the first time in the store. That's awesome. um, and that was a, and it was an otherworldly experience. But for me and my research, my website is anthonyabrahamjack.com. Or if you just simply Google Anthony Jack, either my my Harvard Graduate School of Education website, or that website will pop up and I will keep updated. I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Twitter, I believe, is Tony underscore Jack, and Instagram is AAJack07. And I post everything that has to do with the books or me knitting or trying to learn how to cook with my cast iron skillets and the like. So, yeah, I look forward to engaging you all on social media, but also learning about different things along the way. And do you still post pictures of people who can't park? I do sometimes. <laughs> yes, I do. I work, yes. That's shady. I like it. This is less parking and then just like literally leaving your car in the middle of the street. That's the, that's how bad this, this is. We'll make sure we post all of your info <laughs> yeah. so our followers can follow you. And then our final question is because we have a, Ebony Tower syllabus, where we like to highlight the works, uh, podcasts, 
TV shows, books that our guests like to listen to, read, and watch. So is there anything you'd like to add to the Ebony yeah, Tower syllabus? I'm really looking forward to diving into Gone Home by Karita Brown. Karita's writing is exceptional, but the fact that she is reversing the stereotypical understanding of rural Appalachia as white and actually showing us or rather reminding us that black folks do live there and help build a lot of what is there and have been hurt by what is no longer there is absolutely, it's breathtaking. And like, if I can one day write like Karina, I'm going to be all right. I agree. It is a great book. Uh, I'm currently reading the chapters about schooling for Black students prior to desegregation. It's a really wonderful book. Anything else you'd like to add? I'm missing the crown right now, but that's different. (laughs) But no, right now, um, right now, my students have actually inspired me to read more about Native American education in the United States, the history of Native American education. I recently got a couple of the books books on Native American boarding schools. And I think it was like, kill the Indian, save the man, uh, because we don't talk about Mm -hmm, Native American education. mm -hmm. Um, And the very racist, ironically, almost xenophobic, even though they were here for just the the history of that is is absolutely fascinating and should be talked about more. And I look forward to teaching it when I come back to teaching um, after my sabbatical in the fall. One good book for that I'll add to the list is Education for Extinction. Great book that talks about the history. Yes, I yes. like that too. Yes. Okay. Well, since we're adding things to the syllabus, I was curious, have either of you seen Hale County this morning, this evening yet? No. No? Oh, man. I it's haven't. this new documentary um, by a Black photographer and first-time director out of Hale County, Alabama. And it is so good. I saw it last week. It's actually nominated for an Academy Award, I think. Um, but it's not your typical documentary. It's not like giving you facts. It's literally just showing you the mundane daily life of people in Hale County. It's really beautiful. So I definitely recommend you guys to see it and anyone else listening. I, it's so good. But don't expect your regular documentary. Expect something slow and beautiful about what real Black life can look like in the Southern part of the United States. Thank you. We will definitely add that. Well, you know, this was an amazing conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time to come on with us. We know, you know, you're doing book talks and, you know, book tour and everything right now. So we really appreciate you taking the time. For our listeners, we will have a special book giveaway, signed copies of The Privileged Poor. We will give you the rules for the giveaway on Twitter. Thank you for listening in. And again, thank you for joining us, Professor Jack. Uh, Thank you all for having me. It was our pleasure. All right. If you're interested in being featured on the Ebony Tower, have topic ideas, or simply want to ask Ebony anything, visit our website, www.TheEbonyTower.com or email us at info at TheEbonyTower.com. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Ebony Tower. And please don't forget to rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.